Today is the last week of this five-week series that we've uh, been going through called The Ruck, which means this is the last time that you have to hear me defining what on earth a ruck is. Uh, a ruck, for those of you who don't remember or aren't familiar, a ruck is an exercise, it's like a hiking exercise where you load up a backpack with heavy weights and the purpose of a ruck is not to land in a specific destination. The purpose of the ruck is the, the experience of rucking. And it's about the person that you are becoming as a result of doing this ruck, right? Um, as, as we've been doing this, we've, we've talked about this series being an exploration and following Jesus for first-timers, lifelongers, and everybody somewhere in between. And the way that we've talked about it at the Grove, specifically, is we talk about the Grove Pathway. We've said, if, if we as a church are like a state park, if the large shared experience for us as a church is like us all going to a state park together, there are certain shared smaller experiences that we want to make sure that everyone who's a part of this church to have together, like as individual followers of Jesus and collectively for us as a church. So over the last five weeks, we've talked about welcome. You got to start somewhere. First, you got to show up and we want to be there to welcome people as they show up. The second thing is to connect, like a visitor center, exploring where you're at. And then after that, we have belonging, which is about building meaningful relationships with people. Last week, we talked about forming, that there are some necessary things for us to know and, and to be doing as followers of Jesus, and we don't want to make them too burdensome to the point where we're preventing people from showing up in the first place. And now today, we end with a partner, like a state park pass holder. We hope you come to love the Grove so much that you commit to supporting it with your prayers, presence, gifts, service, and witness. We've done all this work, we've arrived at this point, and it's almost as if, well, it's all downhill from here. Are you familiar with that phrase? Uh, it's, it's all downhill from here? I have really mixed feelings about that phrase. It's, to me, it doesn't sound good. <laughs> like, downhill, going down doesn't necessarily sound good to me. The, the purpose of that phrase, though, is like, oh, now all the work is done, so it's now all down. You can just kind of coast from here. Um, how many of you would say that going downhill is better than going uphill? Raise your hand. Okay, the majority of you say this. I am going to convince you otherwise today. I am going to make a strong argument with visual evidence that going uphill is better and long-term easier than going downhill. Um, going uphill it can kind of be daunting. Um, I live just off of 90th Street over here. There's this big hill that as you're going east on 90th, that leads up towards Keats Avenue or, or Woodbury Drive as it becomes as you go further north, that hill is really daunting, especially when you can see it from a long distance. Hills, as we're moving up towards them, can be really daunting, right? They take work to go up. However, the, the science of going uphill, especially when you are uh, hiking or running, is that Yes, it takes work to go up them, but as you're going up them, the work that you are putting in, you have to have like a specific form as you hike or run up them. You can't like 
lollygag up a hill and successfully make it up. So you have to have that form. You have to, in order to get up the hill, you have to be like uh, putting out a certain amount of power to get up. And as a result of having that form and that power, you're actually developing speed. Hill work is speed work because of the form and the power that you are developing, okay? Even though it feels harder than going down. Downhill, you're looking down after just coming up this big hill. It's like, oh, I finally made it. Now I can coast, right? Well, if you are hiking or running, actually it is much more likely that you are going to get hurt if you do not train for going downhill. You are much more likely, as you are uh, going against gravity, to lose your footing or completely lose control altogether. It is much more important. Well, it's important to work on, on training uphills, but it's also important to work on training downhills. Over time, downhills can be harder and actually worse for you than going uphills. And I, I want to point out two examples, two examples of how this can be done. One, how it can be done well, and how it can be done, another, how it can be done not well. Now, I'm going to have Katie dim the lights so you're able to see these two examples as I pull them up here on the screen, as Benetta pulls them up here on the screen. So the first example is uh, of Grayson Murphy. Grayson Murphy is a, uh, she's a world champion mountain runner, and her, uh, her mantra is airplane arms or you're doing it wrong. So often as she's running, either uphill or downhill, you'll see her like sticking her arms out. Part of that is for balance, but also part of it is for don't take yourself too seriously. She tries not to take herself too seriously even as she's winning these world championships. So here's an example of Grayson Murphy going downhill. Can you, can you take these off, Julie? It's it's actually hard to tell from this video just how difficult of a thing that she's doing. Uh, she's in the middle of running a mountain half marathon, and she finished it in like two hours and ten minutes or something like that. I'm sorry, one hour and ten minutes, including these downhills. You can see, like, she doesn't know the exact downhill, but she knows, all right, keep your feet moving, keep your eyes down. She's moving fast even because she's put the training in to do it well, right? Okay, here's the second example. This is the cheese rolling festival from, how do you pronounce this word? Anybody, the, the name of the, Gloucester, England. Anybody familiar with the cheese rolling festival? What? Okay. So the cheese rolling festival, I'll show a video of it. The cheese rolling festival is this thing that happens in Gloucester, England, where uh, you stand up at the top of a hill, and there's one big roll of cheese that gets rolled down this huge hill, and the point is to run down the hill to be the first one to make it there. And this is how it often goes. You can, they'll come into sight, the cheese will come into sight. Here comes the cheese right there. See the white cheese? And here's all the people running after it. Uh, th th there's like people there to catch at the bottom. They're there to catch the people <laughs> as they crash down this hill. It, it'll keep rolling behind me. Uh, you, it's okay. So here's here's a live picture. Maybe they are airplaning it and they're still doing it right. 
However, again, showing this picture, seeing those videos, it's all downhill from here. Are we sure that's a good thing? Uh, as we have been working our way through this series, what we've been looking at is we have been looking at the book of Acts. Acts is this book that appears right after the uh, four biographies about the life of Jesus that we have in the Bible. And Acts is this book where the earliest followers of Jesus are engaging in their own ruck, trying to figure out what on earth does it look like for us to follow Jesus and for us to invite other people into this thing uh, going forward when Jesus isn't here with us. And so we see them like falling forward, trying to figure out as, as we go through this book what on earth that looks like and, and how they can invite other people into this whole mess. And it'd be easy to say, all right, well, that must be a really uphill climb. That's, this is a lot of hard work. And yet what we see pretty quickly is there's a lot of downhill that happens. Within the first couple chapters, thousands of people respond Thousands of people uh, choose to be baptized and to enter this whole following Jesus thing. And it is moving so fast that it could easily and quickly get way out of their control. There were 12 of them to begin with. And all of a sudden there's thousands of them and they have to figure out how on earth do we manage this? How do we, this momentum is great. How do we manage this momentum so that we don't completely lose it? so that we don't completely crash and burn. So the, the question very practically is, how are they going to go about doing this? And we see an example of this in chapter 6 of Acts, verses 1 through 7, and that's going to be up here on the screen behind me. Now in those days when the disciples were growing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Greek-speaking Jews against the native Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve called the whole group of the disciples together and said, It is not right for us to neglect the word of God to wait on tables. But carefully select from among you, brothers, seven men who are well attested, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this necessary task but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The proposal pleased the entire group, so they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, with Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a Gentile convert to Judaism from Antioch. They stood these men before the apostles who prayed and placed their hands on them, the word of God continued to spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased greatly, and a large group of priests became obedient to the faith. So we have this situation that's happening in the, the early church. This is days, weeks, maybe months after Jesus has left them and handed off this mission to them, and they are facing this issue of people aren't having, they, they don't have enough food, and it's breaking down by whether they speak uh, Hebrew or whether they speak Greek. And so the people who are experiencing this bring it to the leaders of the church. And at this point, the leaders of the church are the 12 apostles. The apostles were the original closest followers of Jesus. They bring them this issue and say, you got to do something about it. Now, if you, if you just read this through, you might be thinking like, those 12 are super lazy. 
How pretentious. Like, they get brought this, this concern, and they say, listen, we're not going to do that. You go find some other people to do it, but we are not going to do that. It, it'd be really easy to say, oh, well, well, they're just passing off this thing that they're not interested in doing to, to some lower people who don't mean as much, right? Actually, it is the exact opposite of what is happening. This thing is growing, right? It is moving really fast. It is going downhill. The momentum is picking up, and this issue comes up. This stumbling point comes up, and the the apostles, these earliest, closest followers of Jesus, see this thing, and it is so important. It is so important that something is done about it that they say someone else needs to do this because this is not something that we are capable of doing and focusing on. It is a point at which they have to, rather than clinging to their own power and position, they have to hand power over to people because it is too important. They have to empower other people to do this work because they can't do it all. Again, let's look at that, this one verse. Uh, this is uh, uh, two verses, I guess, uh, three and four. But carefully select from among you, brothers, seven men who are well attested, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this necessary task, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. It's not that they're like, this thing is unimportant. It is, it, this is so important that we need to choose some really good people to make sure that everyone is getting what they need. And these people who are in charge of that need to have the gifts and the passion for this. We do not currently have the gifts and the passion for this. We need to focus on what we are capable of doing, and we need to spread the wealth of leadership to people who can take this on because this ministry is so important, right? This is a huge deal because they could have easily clung to it themselves. They could have easily said, well, we are the important ones. Either we are going to do it or it's not important, and so we're just going to let it uh, die on the vine. Instead, they choose to use their power to empower other people and saying, listen, we need partners in this ministry if this thing is going to continue, if we are going to keep this momentum going, if we are going to be able to invite other people and more people into this ruck. Um, we've got a long history of the church at this point in the year 2023. Um, one of the biggest regrets that I have for the church 2,000 years later is the emphasis that we have placed on professional clergy. This is coming from a clergy person who does this professionally. <laughs> so do not hear me that I don't think that people should be doing this professionally, those who are gifted and called and passionate about doing this. I think there's still a role for them. I think there's still a role for me, right? When, when clergy people, when pastors, when priests do this really well, they, they focus on the thing that they are gifted and passionate and called to do, which is helping people to understand, experience, and share the grace of God, not only themselves, but with their faith community and the community at, at, at large. 
However, so often, so much emphasis has been placed on professional clergy to do the work themselves, including by the professional clergy themselves, that, oh, the church is this thing that you go to on a Sunday morning, and the church is run by this one person, usually a guy, usually a white guy. They're the one who do the ministry. We are here to participate in that, accept it, and then he, again, usually he, is the one who does the work. And too often it is the professional clergy person who's leading that, that charge. Not only is that not how the world works in general, but it's not how this whole movement of Jesus worked from the very beginning. From the very beginning, Jesus was inviting people in, men and women, into this movement, and then giving them the power to go out and do these things as well, in order that the grace of God could be understood, experienced, and uh, invited, uh, inviting more people in as a process, that that momentum could keep up rather than us falling over our own feet, right? This is how it was supposed to be from the beginning. This is how it needs to be now. And part of that is practical, and a huge part of it is uh, is missional as well. I don't know if you know this, but we as a church are growing. <laughs> if you've been around enough, you've been able to see and experience it. Um, our kids' ministry is an example. Our, just as a literal snapshot, our early promotional photos before we launched weekly public worship, if you go back and look at them, they're really well cropped because there were five kids at that point. They were the five staff kids. You will see the same five back of the heads because there are my three girls and Jacob and Katie's son and daughter. That's all we had at the, that point. But we're a year and a half in. We continue to get more and more kids who are ruckus and leading us in this ruckus worship experience, right? We continue to grow and we continue to invite more and more people into this thing because they are experiencing it for themselves. And what that means is that as a professional clergy person, I cannot do it all, and I should not do it all. Katie is the same. You are the same. We each have our own gifts and passions that we contribute to being the church as a whole so that we can support this thing where we can uh, understand, experience, and invite more people into the grace of God. Just as a really easy example, too, th this passage that we just read is a perfect example for me. I am not gifted and passionate in all things, and so I should not be responsible for all things. And food is one of them. I love food, I love making food, but when it comes to choosing food, specifically for like large group gatherings, some of you who know me, you know not to bug me with that, not because I don't want to be bugged with it, but because I do not have the gifts and passions for it, because I will have a panic attack. Do not ask me what type of food we should have for an event with more than like four people. Do not ask me how much we should have. I don't know what we should have. Should we have this thing or this thing? What if someone's unhappy with this thing and they would have preferred this thing? What if we get too much food? What if we don't have enough? I am freaking out as I'm talking about it. 
But we have people in this congregation, in this smallish but growing congregation, who are really gifted and really passionate about that. And when it comes to food for gatherings, they own it because they are gifted and they are passionate about it and it is their way to partner in this ministry together. If you would ask them to come up here and talk for 20 minutes about anything, they would probably have a panic attack, right? And that's exactly the point. We each play our own role in partnering in this thing together in order that we can keep this downhill momentum going so we don't trip over our own feet so that more and more people can participate in the process. We might be wrapping up this series today. We might be wrapping up this thing that we've called the ruck. But again, the ruck is not about arriving at a destination it is about the people that we are becoming as, uh, as a part of the process, and it is about the shared experience. And for us as a church, this is a shared, ongoing experience we are, where we are continuing to develop, we are continuing to change, we are continuing to hone those gifts and passions alongside one another so that we can continue not only to do this work for ourselves, but we can continue to invite more and more people into this too. And so this last shared experience, not a destination, but a shared experience that we invite people into as individual followers of Jesus and as a part of this church is into being a partner, like a pass holder at a state park who says, I love this thing so much that I am going to invest in it so that I can experience it, but also so that other people can experience it. As we partner, we say that we are committing our prayers, presence, gifts, witness, and service. What that means is that we're going to pray for each other and we're going to pray for this community. We're going to show up on Sundays. You might not be here every Sunday. That's okay. Uh, we're going to give financially to make sure this thing continues, not only for us, but for the people who are arriving next. We're going to use those gifts and passions to be able to build this thing up and keep the momentum rolling. And we're going to tell other people about it because it means so much to us and has been such a transformative experience for us as well. Our hope is that everyone who considers this church to be their church home will, will make that commitment to be a partner. And not everybody's going to do that. And not everybody's going to feel called to do that. You might not now, you might not ever. Our commitment as a whole is to welcome celebrate and encourage every single person who comes through our doors. Partnership is a commitment from you back to the church. You might not ever get to the point where you can make that commitment for yourself. However, what you need to know is that other people have made it for you and to you. So wherever you find yourself on this rock, whether you are a first-timer, whether you are a lifelonger, or you are someone in between, May you know that you are here right where you need to be and that we are here to help you take the next right step, whether that is uphill or downhill. May that be so.